friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What's up, y'all? It's the MC Lars Podcast. This is episode 15. And uh, this week we have a special friend, a homie of mine, Howie Abrams. Howie Abrams started out in the music industry working for some metal labels. He started out as a roadie for Anthrax. And uh, he talks about on this podcast how he gave Anthrax and, and Scott Ian the idea for the chorus of their I'm the Man rap, like the melody for that. He talks about what it was like working for Roadrunner Records and how Sepultura kind of broke down boundaries between hardcore metal. He talks about working with Jam Master J on this Dog Eat Dog remix. And um, really interesting thing he gets into is how he got uh, in touch with Bowling for Soup and eventually uh, convinced Jive Records to sign them. And then how he and I linked up and then how he linked me with Bowling for Soup. And finally, how the publishing, the music publishing deal he signed me to when I first graduated college kind of helped me make an important decision where I had to figure out, am I going to do MC Lars or am I going to go right to grad school and, you know, do a master's in psychology or something? Or am I going to like learn about psychology and the world from touring? So I owe that to Howie as I also owe to him my uh, collaboration with KRS-One because that came about through my connection with Universal Publishing back in the day. Howie now, he's a, he's still an author. He's done a bunch of projects. At the end, after our interview, I'll talk about some of his upcoming projects. On the podcast, he talks about some of his projects. But something interesting is the editor he works with, who he writes books for, is at Simon & Schuster now. And I interviewed Eamon Dolan a few weeks ago, who's also an editor at Simon & Schuster. So it's a very small world. Howie doesn't work with Eamon, but I'm sure they have crossed paths. So that's what's up. Um, we're going to end the podcast with I'm Dreaming of a Green Christmas, which 10 years ago I recorded with Jarrett from Bowling for Soup for, as a promo for an EP we did before Robot Kills came out. So I thought we'd end with that as the holiday season is upon us. I want to thank our awesome Patreon supporters, Mark with a C, who's an amazing musician. Mark, thank you for your support. Shout out to Adam and Ernie. And of course, I want to give a shout out to some of the old school supporters, William William. And Emily and William Jones, William J, saw me uh, open for Bowling for Soup in 2005 in Chicago and has been coming to all my shows since then. So that's tight. So before we jump into this, I want to read a quote from the Velveteen Rabbit. This is a um, beautiful quote that I think kind of sums up in the music industry, you know, there are people you work with who you become friends with, who have your back, who will always be there for you. And there are people who you kind of just like meet briefly who help you out or you help them and you don't see again. But Howie is one of those people who I consider a dear actual friend, and uh, he's been loyal to his artists like Ill Bill and the Lords of Brooklyn because Howie comes from a DIY place of helping people out and you know doing it for the right reason. So I want to read this quote from the Velveteen Rabbit, which is like a beautiful quote that kind of makes me emotional. Okay, generally by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. That's tight. This is my interview with Howie Abrams on the MC Lars podcast. Check it out. Our guest this week is an interesting man whose career has spanned from 
working at In Effect Records, doing A&R for Roadrunner. Correct me if I'm wrong in yep, any of this. That's the right order so a- far. A&R uh, for Jive Zomba. That's right. And then starting your own imprint with Warner. Right, Warner Chapel, yep. And then becoming a published author, starting your own publishing company. Yeah, like did a couple of things in between the uh, the being an author and the end of the publishing career there. Um, I managed some bands. I did I, like just day job stuff too because I was trying to figure out what the heck to do with myself. Yeah. And kind of on a weird whim wound up writing a book. You know, probably a bunch of your listeners know who Ill Bill is. Ill Bill is a really close friend of mine for years. And I'm also good friends with Vinny Paz from Jedi Mind Tricks. And me and Bill and Vinny would have these conversations about music and they're like metal and punk and hardcore encyclopedias as well as, you know, hip hop guys. Yeah. And so, you know, we would get into those like minutia heavy metal conversations and we would be like oh that album's so great but that's the worst album cover i've ever seen you know like it's so dumb like how can that such a great album have such a terrible cover you know and we would just talk about all this stuff bands are sold out bands that you know don't get enough credit like and it just went on and it felt like we were sitting around in a bar you know it had that type of feel to it right yeah and then i'm like man i remembered this book that that sasha jenkins did um, called the book of rap lists that he did a bunch of years ago, which I loved because again, you had to be like a real fan because there's so much minutia in it that the, the, the topics and the types of lists that were in it, you had to just love this music and this culture to even care. You right, know? right, right. And I'm like, you know, the only other genre you could really do something like this with would be metal because metal fans care about all this stuff. Right. You know, they care about, you know, bands selling out and like this album was faster than that album or, you know, terrible album covers or whatever it was like just any, anything, you know, related to that band or the music or whatever. So I approached Sasha and I said, what do you think about doing a metal version of your rap list book? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and he's a real author. Like he, you know, he's done real books before, you know, did the Eminem book. He's, you know, he's, he's an author. Yeah. And uh, and now a filmmaker. He's done some great stuff. He was like, I love it, you know, but he was doing a, he had a company called Ego Trip at the time, which was a magazine and sort of a production company. And they did the white rapper show. They were the right, production right. company. Yeah. And so he's like, but we don't have Ego Trip anymore, but I don't care. You know, like, let's just do it. So he introduced me to his literary agent and that was a whole new world for me. Like I didn't know anything about, he was totally into it and he told us how to put a proposal together for it. And we did, you know, kind of, we just sort of wrote 10 pages, you know? Yeah. And then he shopped it and we got an actual publishing deal within about three weeks which was just shocking, you know, like, cause this was, I'd Good never, job, man. <laughs> I'd never like done this before, yeah. you know? And so we got, and ironically, the publisher was Abrams Publishing, right, right. which does the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, you know? So like when I said, Hey, we got to deal with Abrams Publishing, they're all like, Oh, so you're self-publishing? I'm like, no, no, it's like a real, <laughs> it's a real place. They do like major books. Yeah. So we did it. We actually had like a nice amount of success with it. It was great. We were in the New York Times. We were in like Entertainment Weekly, like real mainstream, you know, press like that picked it up. I remember walking around Brooklyn and there was promotion for it. Like my philosophy is with books, like especially about music related stuff and things yeah. like that is you promote it like like a record. 
you know, because you're, you're, you're trying to hit up music fans. Yeah. And so the way that they find out about albums and artists and whatever, you have to go about it the same way. Right. So if you do it like book promotion, you know, you're going to get some press in places that are just never going to sell you a book, especially a book like that. You said it was in New York Times? Yeah, the New York Times did. They latched on. We did a list called, which was the 200 worst heavy metal album covers of all time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they latched on to that list. Yeah. So they did a full page Sunday arts and leisure section with with images and an oh, interview wow. with me and Sasha, you know, about these covers and they, they highlighted about 12 covers. That's pretty dope. So they interviewed us about the 12 <laughs> covers, like what's terrible about them, you know? And most of it came down to like, would you ever wear that on a t-shirt? Like you'd be <laughs> like, you'd be embarrassed to walk down the street with that on a t-shirt, you know? Maybe you made some of those albums cool again though. <laughs> well, we may have, but definitely brought attention to some of them, you know, because, yeah. because a lot of them are great albums. What, was, so what was the worst? Do you remember? Well, the number one worst was the first Anthrax album, Fistful of Metal, which is like this metal guy's fist with like spikes and a chain wrapped <laughs> around it and like a like a cutoff finger leather glove, right. you know, coming through the back of a guy's head and out of his mouth, right? But it's it's drawn like a four-year-old did it. You know what I mean? It's terrible. It's not like anatomically correct like the where things are don't uh -huh. make sense you know this wasn't a self like a self-release this was an actual this was their first album on megaforce you wow. know and yeah. so and it's a classic album it's a classic metal album yeah you know it was like the east coast's entry into thrash metal you know yeah and so it's a big deal album and it's horrible like the cover's the worst you know yeah so and people agree you know what i mean the band agrees you know so <laughs> I've, I've heard the band doing interviews talking about how crappy the album cover is, you yeah. know? And like, like, what were we thinking? And we were in a hurry and like somebody in the band's girlfriend did it. And it was, you know, it was one of those. So like it came together, like why it sucked, you know? Yesterday I was listening to their Attack of the Killer Bees compilation. Yeah, which they did good covers. The Bring the Noise remixes right. on that. Which was very controversial actually, because it like divided the troops on that band a little bit. Really? Yeah. Because there's people who just loved it. I loved it. You know, yeah. um, Bill loved it. Like just, you know, people who, whatever you thought of Anthrax's couple of albums before that, like it was a bold thing to do. Yeah. And it's a really good cover. But like the purest metal fans were like, why are you putting fucking rap music in yeah. our shit? You know? And turntables. Like, take take the, their hip hop peanut butter out of our chocolate, you know, out of our metal <laughs> chocolate, you know? And it was weird because a lot of people like hated it. Listening to that, it was like a moment of convergence, right? Big time. It was brilliant on that level alone. Yeah. That song with guitars and then with Scott Ian rapping the third verse. Which was the worst part. <laughs> That's where it kind of like fell apart for me a little bit. But the combo of those two groups realizing that they're both kind of revolutionary musically, lyrically, that they were ultimately kind of coming from a similar place. And then both from New York. Both from New York. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was younger and I was spending a lot of time with the guys in Anthrax and everything, we used to go to the Def Jam and Rush offices a lot. Oh, cool. And so we would go up there and that's how we first heard Public Enemy when Yo Bum Rush the Show was coming out. Flavor and Chuck would be at the office all the time. Flavor would be there all the time, like harassing all the you know <laughs> assistants and stuff. Right. And we would go up there and then we heard what they were doing. And 
the thing about the bomb squad doing production at that time and what Rick Rubin was doing at the time, it felt like hard rock music. You know, the energy was so in your face and like hip hop wasn't that at the time. Right. It was very head nod, you know, and about the MC and the music tended to come secondary. And, but yeah. they put like the, the, the tracks at the forefront and it was like a little irritating and it was hard. That was anthrax. That's heavy metal too, you know? Yeah, right. So those two coming together, it kind of made all the sense in the world. And then they became friends. So they did the song, but you know, you're always going to have purists. I'm sure most purist rap aficionados hated it. And <laughs> a lot of purist metal heads hated it. Yeah. But it sort of transcended all that and became almost, you know, like this pop song in a way, because a lot of people who didn't care that much about either group to that point heard it and were like, oh shit, that's awesome. That was my first inroad to Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. Somehow I thought Chuck D and Flavor Flav were part of Anthrax. Right, right, like right. Like it was like their guest singers. Right, right, right. <laughs> so listening to that record again, and then there's that, the I'm the Man remix. Which is fucking <laughs> awful. So a guy who I did a fanzine with, like an 84, 85, who I went to junior high school and high school with, yeah. a guy named John Rooney. He was like my partner in crime with music and stuff. We all went to shows together and like all that stuff. And we yeah. became very good friends with like the Anthrax guys for a while, like uh, around the time of spreading the disease, their second album. So we went on the road with them. Like we would, you know, do stage security for them. Like just like for them to justify having us there, kind of, uh -huh, you know? Right. And we would do a fanzine and we interviewed them and stuff like that. And so we were at Scott Ian's engagement party and it was in a house. We're in the kitchen and we were talking about, wouldn't it be funny? Like if you did a rap song, you know? <laughs> And so people start like just throwing out lyrics, you know, like jokingly, you know, yeah. I assumed that it was ending there, you know, like my thing was, you know, well, what about the music? And I said, what about if you did Hava Nagila? Right. So I was like, dun, 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 oh. dun, 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 dun. And that became the riff. Right. So John, my friend wrote a bunch of the lyrics Okay. I came up and uncredited get the idea for like the Havana Gila guitar part. Uh -huh. And then they fucking do it. They and actually put it out. Was it a hit for them? It was a hit. Right. And it's terrible. And on the cover, they're dressed in uh, like- yeah, Like Adidas. They're trying yeah. to do like a big Run DMC-ish kind of thing. But and the joke is that they end the line with a surprising lyric, right? right? Like and the opposite of what you'd expect them to yeah, say. Yeah. So kinda. it's like, but the remix, it has kind of like the Amen breakbeat and it's kind of more unified. And I remember a few years ago- I was uh, I was hanging out with Mike Kennedy, who was mm -hmm. who was in a band from VOD. from VOD, and we were at a party, and Scott Ian was there, and I I was trying to talk to him about like why he did a remix of it, right? And he said it was something like the label wanted a more clean version of it, but that remix wasn't as big of a hit. No, but no. it sounds much better. Yeah, the original version was actually like it, it sold a lot of copies. It was their first um, actual gold record. Oh wow, for Anthrax. But I hated that, like to me, because that was like a mockery. It's a parody. Yeah, right. and it was just, but a mockery, not even just a parody. Was, was that like, pre or post working with Public Enemy? I think that was after. Okay. And so okay. it was too spoofy, you know? Right. And Scott was legitimately into hip hop, so it's not like he didn't respect the culture. Yeah. But I don't know if it was sort of intended to be like a goof or if people just took it as a goof. So they're like, yeah, yeah, it was a goof, you know? Like, I'm not sure- Right. Like how serious they intended it to be. I mean, obviously the lyrics are goofy, so like it couldn't have been meant to be too serious, 
but I wasn't a fan. Like Dee Dee Ramone's rap album. Right. For to those me, of you who haven't to, heard that, to look me that that's up. more credible than I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not anything I haven't yeah. said before. You're coming up in New York. You were a roadie for Nuclear Assault. So Nuclear Assault was another band that John and I became very good friends with. They're all from Queens. Anthrax was from Queens. Nuclear Assault's from Queens. And then Dan got thrown out of the band, Danny Loker, and uh, for being too tall. That's a true story. And because uh, the singer hated that the bass player was taller than him. Mm. And then they threw him out afterward, like 10 seconds later. So it made no <laughs> sense. I became really good friends with those guys because musically, I related to them more. I liked them a bit more as a band because after Among the Living, Anthrax's third album, they started to sort of lose me, you know? I really latched onto Nuclear Assault. They became like one of my favorite bands, you know? At that time, like an independent, aggressive band, whether it be a punk or hardcore or metal band, everybody needed help, you know? Yeah. So aside from being friends with them, they needed someone to roadie. They couldn't afford a roadie, you know, whatever it was. So I just sort of helped them out we dubbed their demo tapes in my house, you know, on my boombox, and then we'd bring them to Bleaker Bob's to sell, like that kind of stuff. But it was a real, like, that was more of a genuine friendship, you know? Yeah. And just like really trying to support this band that we loved. So that was how I met a lot of people through those guys. Like, you don't really sort of know that you're networking, but you kind of were, you know? Right. But you didn't look at it at the time. I was a teenager. I loved the band. I was getting into the show for free. And what, do I have to lift some gear or write out a set list? So what? Yeah. You know, so it was great. I've told this story before. One day they needed a ride to their label for a meeting. Their album, their first album had come out and they weren't that happy about how it was going mm -hmm. with the label. So- I thought I was just driving them to the label. And then they sort of said, why don't you just come in and you'll sit in on the meeting and, you know, whatever. So I sat in on the meeting with the label president and those guys and a marketing guy and whatever. And they're kind of like, you know, we're just not happy about how things are going. Like you're pushing other bands more than us and like whatever. So they were like, you should hire this guy, me. <laughs> I'm 16. And I'm like, how did that just become a part of this discussion, you know? And so... I start talking to the president of the label, you know, and I'm 16 years old and I'm probably high at the time, you know, cause we're sure we got high before we went to the friggin' meeting. And he's asking me questions like, what would you do? You know? And I just felt like the labels at that time had like this routine, like you book some ads in the right magazines and you do this and you do that. And it's like, it became very formula. Yeah. And after a while, when you do it with 10 bands, like, you know, the eighth and ninth and 10th band, it's not working so well for them because right. it's just like tired already. Like, have you ever found out about a band from an ad in a magazine? Like, did you ever look at Rolling Stone, see an ad and go, oh, I love, I want to buy that? Probably not for 25 years. Yeah, for me, I'm not sure if it's ever. You know, we were talking and then they're like, you know, so you could tell he's kind of like digging where I'm coming from. Yeah. And then he goes, wait a minute, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 16. And he's like, well, first of all, I'm not going to be responsible for you leaving high school to come work here. Like, that's not happening. Uh -huh. So why don't you give me a call, like, when you're done with school and we'll see what's what. So that's actually what I did. So when high school was over, I actually gave him a call and I sort of badgered him. I like kept calling and calling. Right. And he, he actually hired me. At the time, the company was called Important and it was Important Record Distributors because they started out as an import company. Oh, yeah. So they would import all the like British singles, like everything that was in the NME, you know, and the Melody Maker and stuff like that. Like whatever was in there, they would like import and sell. Mm. 
And, but then they started a couple of record labels. So they had combat records at the time, which was a metal label. They had relativity records at the time, which was like Joe Satriani and uh, Steve Vai. Right. Mm, yeah. And they had the Le Miserable soundtrack <laughs> like that, but it sold like crazy. Right. Like it was, it was a big deal. I got a job as a salesman and I wasn't very good at it, but like my foot was in the door and I was getting free promos and I'm 16 and it's great. I'm somebody's paying me right. like to do something with music. It was kind of cool. So then as I'm there, I started to observe things and like realize stuff. And I'm like, man, you know, these, all these bands that you guys are distributing that have no contracts with their labels, like these indie labels that they distributed, they distributed, you know, Discord and Revelation and, you know, all of these like pretty prominent independent labels. And I'm like, some of these bands are so much bigger or poised to be so much bigger than the ones you're spending money on. Like, why don't we start a label like to, mm. to put these bands out, you know? That became in effect? Well, that became in effect. So yeah. within six months of being a salesman there, we started this label, In Effect Records. I was 19 now at That's the time. Dope. We put out Agnostic Front. We put out Prong. We put out Sick of It All. We put out Killing Time. Then we did 24-7 Spies. You had a chance to sign Primus, right? I was Well, reading that. that was the thing. Like Primus and Limbo Maniacs, both from San Francisco, they were like brother bands. They played together all the time. They were friends. Primus was starting to make some noise. Like they yeah. had that independent record out. Uh, before Frizzle Fry, there was a live album. Suck on this. So, and people started to care about them, you know? Yeah. And so I really liked them. And I also really liked the Limbo Maniacs, but everybody was like, we should try to get Primus. We should try to get Primus. But by the time we were really able to like contact them and have conversations or whatever, now there was sort of a bidding war. Mm. And we're like this new little label, you know, we're not going to win that, you know? And so they wound up getting signed to a major label for like a ton of money. They were Interscope's first band right like One big of them. rock band anyway yeah that was interesting because primus really came from that thrash funk war underground world well yeah you had a guy in primus who had been in like arguably the first death metal band possessed you know oh was um, les claypool was in possessed larry lalonde oh wow i didn't know that was in possessed yeah um then he was in a band called blind illusion which was another more like proggy bay area metal band you know les claypool after Cliff Burton died, was probably the first person Metallica asked to audition wow. to play in Metallica. Yeah. And they were like, all right, what do you want to play? He's like, let's play some Isley Brothers tunes, you know? And they were like, yeah, not the, he's not going to be the right guy, you know? <laughs> right. And so, you know, wound up getting Jason Newstead. Yeah. But, um, but he was the first guy, you know, because they were friends with him. Kirk Hammett used to go fishing with Les Claypool, you right. know, in San Francisco. Primus was the first band I would say that we really wanted that we couldn't get. How did that Dog Eat Dog, Jam Master J, No Fronts collab happen? In effect, lasted till about 1992. And then Sony bought the whole company. Oh, wow. And so they got rid of like all the creative people. They kept a handful of bands, dropped most of the rest, mm -hmm. and that was the end of that. And they just made it relativity. They got rid of all the other imprints, so there was no more So combat. they kind of merged it all together. All together, very yeah. corporate style, you know, did all that. And then so now I'm like, well, what am I going to do next? And I got a call from the people at Roadrunner, and they said, you know, we saw what you did over there with an effect. You want to come over here, you yeah. know, and do something similar. And I was like, sure, I like the label. I liked Sepultura and, you know, what they were doing. But they were largely a death metal label at the time, you know? Yeah. And what I wanted to do was not that, you know? What year was this? 92. 
So this was before Roots. Sepultura. Oh, way before. Roots. Way, yeah. way, way before. Was it? Was it before? This was during a rise. Chaos AD before that. Before. So this was wow. like a rise was kind of the record that was out at the time. Yeah. Then came Chaos AD. Then came Roots. So what were some of Roadrunner's first big selling? The first real big stuff they had was like Merciful Fate and King Diamond. Okay. So that was the stuff that was like big you death know death metal stuff yeah right? so you had merciful fate and then into king diamond solo and so and they were you know like just super prominent in the metal world you know yeah. and then sepultura was next you know for them but obituary did well as a death metal band you know there were a couple of death metal bands that did their like death metal thing but it had like a ceiling on it you know sure sepultura felt like they didn't have a ceiling on it because kind of after slayer Sepultura was the band. Just because it was so universal or like I just think they were a little faster. Uh-huh. They were more aggressive. They were sticking to the formula that the first 3 albums Slayer fans liked. And they were just relentless, you know what I mean? So there was no let up. Like you had no idea that they would ever stop doing that style. And they just kept getting better and better at it. What I liked about that band, they were one of my favorites like in middle school was that there was you would remember melodic moments That's right. from their stuff, which some of the other metal stuff not as much. Well, you know? they were also anthemic. Yeah. And like Max's voice was just kind of a very straightforward, angry voice. So it had like a punk hardcore thing about yeah. it, you know? Yeah. And like they were very unpretentious. You didn't look at them as like a rock star band, uh -huh. you know? You could relate to them, you know? Yeah. And you saw the other music that they liked and were influenced by, and you can, it wasn't all just death metal bands. Like they liked other stuff. Yeah. They liked hardcore, you know, they liked Discharge. They liked those types of bands. So you saw where they were coming from, you know? And then I met them and they were like the nicest, most humble guys in the world. And I think musically, you know, you saw there was like Metallica and then you had sort of Slayer. And then after Slayer, when people were like looking for that next band, yeah. the time was right for it to be Sepultura. And Sepultura were awesome, like great live. And then they did um, this thing called the New Titans on the Block Tour, which was their first like real headlining tour of America. Uh -huh. And they took out Sacred Reich, who made sense, you know, to take out Napalm Death mm. and Sick of It All. Oh, okay. And they were huge fans of Sick of It All. Yeah. And they gave them like a really early break to tour the country with a metal band, like taking this hardcore band and really doing like a 40-date U.S. tour and taking them everywhere. And like they fell in love with them, you know? Mm. And it was just such a great tour because while they were super different, it made all the sense in the world in a live setting, you know? Yeah. And like Sepultura fans were getting turned on to Sick of It All, you know? And it was a big turning point for Sick of It All. And that's kind of like it was a nexus for your career. Yeah. And and Sick of It All wound up touring with DRI. They wound up touring with Exodus, you know, which at the time there would be a show here and there where like a punk or hardcore band would open for a metal band or yeah. vice versa, but not tours, you yeah. know, where it was like, no, we're committing to this idea and we're going to do 40 shows around the country and then even maybe go overseas with it and all that yeah. and like introduce people to something a little different. And so I always respected Sepultura for taking that approach. Like, cause how many Sepultura obituary suffocation tours can you do? You know, people are getting tired of even that. It's like, we'll touch on this again, but like when you put me together with Bowling for Sue, right. bringing different genres together and different styles, it's always more interesting. But it also makes sense sometimes. Like yeah. there are certain fits that just make sense. Yeah. And like you and Bowling for Soup made all the sense in the world because there's 
aside from the fact musically it were totally different, but there was a tongue in cheekness about it, you know, about them, about what you were doing. Nobody was taking themselves really seriously. (laughs) You both were ridiculously entertaining in your own way. And my first thought was like, man, if Lars could just open for those guys, their audience would love him. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, hey, Jarrett, like there's this guy, you know, and the rest is kind of history. You've done so much with them, but it made sense. It wasn't forced. It was something where there was that, you know, semi-rare occasion where it just made perfect sense. And it worked, you know, and you wound up being on Jarrett's label and songs together and stuff and like, it worked, you know, and it did a lot for both of you. Let's circle back to that because I want to talk about like the chapter of how I met you yeah. in your career, how we got to that Tom po- Gates. That point, yeah, Tom and Network and everything. So the dog eat dog thing, oh, right. that was Roadrunner, right? Yeah, so that was on Roadrunner. Um, it's a band I signed for like freaking pennies. They were just a really, really good band out of Jersey. They were starting to make some noise, you know, in the hardcore world, but they weren't really like a pure hardcore band. Um, They had like sort of a hip hop element to them and they were skater kids. Like that's really kind of what it was. Yeah. And to me, skater kids were always tastemakers, you know? So like, I remember like the rap labels used to go down to like all the skater spots and give out promos Mm. and stuff because those kids were like the kids who knew music, you know, and the stuff that was going to be next. Well, and also probably because before the internet, they had the physical mobility of being able to travel, right? To different parts of the neighborhood. That's right. Without having to borrow mom's car. That's right. Yeah. And like, I remember like the the rap labels would go down to the Brooklyn banks and stuff like that, give out t-shirts and like cassettes, like promo cassettes and, you know, and half the time those kids knew who those artists were already, you know, Uh because they were onto it. Right. And because they were just the most up on music kids, like, you know, in in every state in the country, you know? Right. Um, So they used to promote to them. So these kids were like skater kids. They used to skate down there, you know? I saw a couple of shows of theirs and I really loved like what they were doing, like this sort of, you know, it had been done before, like blending a little hip hop with hardcore and, but I liked the way they were doing it. There was a cool feel to it that I hadn't really heard before. They had great melodies. They cared about their songs, you know? And so whether it was anthemic or melodic, you remembered the song, you know? And so they started to make noise like in the New York area. I wound up having a conversation with them. You know, I did a deal with them and they weren't really ready to make an album. So we made a four song EP, right? Um, And what's funny is the band's called Doggy Dog. So they called the EP Warrant because the hair metal band Warrant had just put out a an album called Doggy oh, Dog. So, that's pretty good. So, so that was like how that started. <laughs> yeah. And it started to get, you know, bigger. And then they were offered a tour of the UK with the Bad Brains, who they knew a little bit. And they did 11 dates over there, uh, you know, super on the cheap, you know, making 200 bucks a show, mm. like just praying like, you know, you come out even when it's over, you know? Right, But yeah. they sold just enough merchandise like to to float the tour, you know? So they came back from that and then the guys in Biohazard were very fond of them. In fact, Billy from Biohazard is how I indirectly got their demo um, because he gave it to someone at Roadrunner in Europe and they sent it to me. Wow. Uh, So it like came from New Jersey to Europe, like back to me in New York. Yeah. And Biohazard said, we want to take them on tour. 
And Biohazard was huge overseas at this point. Mm. They were playing three to 5,000 seaters all over Europe, the continent and the UK. And because Doggy Dog had just been there with the Bad Brains, now the promoters kind of knew who they were. So mm. like, oh, you want to take that band? That's cool. They did well here. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, they did well with the Bad Brains. So we know who they are. Like they were cool to work with. Their first Doggy Dog album comes out. They go over with uh, Biohazard and they start to do really, really well. Like they're doing great on the tour. They're not stealing Biohazard's thunder because that was sort of impossible at the time, but they were getting a lot of attention and they started to get almost like mainstream attention. Like MTV was paying attention and they had a single out called No Fronts, which was the original version from the album. And then, so they started to get big. They come back. We realized, wow, we just sold like a whole bunch of records over there from that tour. Yeah. Album comes out. We do a second single called Who's the King? And it gets bigger. Like they do another tour over there and they start doing the festivals and like all that kind of stuff. And they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now we're at like 50, 60,000 albums. But we really had no third single. So we're like, what should we do? So I came up with this idea that when they had no fronts out, there were so few people who knew really who they were. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take that song and do some kind of remix or a redo of it and re-release it, you know, because that was the hit per se, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we're like, how do we add something to this thing? So I said, well, why don't we get Run DMC to produce it? And they had the same lawyer. So instead mm-hmm. of Run DMC, the group, it became Jam Master J. And so we did a new version of this song, No Fronts, with Jam Master J producing it. Re-recorded from scratch, different tempo, different verse lyrics, everything. But the chorus was the same. Yeah. Because the hook was such a great hook. And so we released that. We did a video for it and they blew up. Like they became MTV darlings. At the time there was something called Viva in Germany, which was like the German language MTV, you know, huge there. So it's England, it's the continent, it's everywhere. And they just fucking explode. And mm. they wound up selling like five, 600,000 records in Europe Wow! on that album. Wow. And it was amazing. And it had a lot to do with this Jam Master J version of that song. It worked great. I mean, it was just, it was such, it's one of those things. Good job, you, Howie. <laughs> thank you. But you, you never expect it, you know, right. you don't know that's going to happen, you know, And it it was like bowling for soup. You knew what they were capable of, but you never start counting chickens that this is just going to happen. Let's fast forward. So you were working as A&R at Jive, right? Yeah. So I I left uh, Roadrunner. Yeah. And I got a gig uh, originally at Zamba Music Publishing, which unbeknownst to me at the time was really the same company. Were you there when they signed ICP? I was after. Okay. So ICP had already been there and left. Right. So Was um, KRS one still KRS was there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How about Ari the Rugged Man? Ari the Rugged Man was gone by that time too. He had already like pissed off like the whole, (laughs) you know, staff and was gone. But I was a fan, you know? Yeah, right. In fact, Doggy Dog did shows with Ari the Rugged Man. That's awesome. Um, They had the same manager. That's awesome. For a while. (laughs) So there were Ari the Rugged Man Doggy Dog shows. Um, I get there and, you know, I knew it as Jive anyway as like this rap label. So they had Tribe Called Quest, KRS-One. You know, they had R. Kelly, who was like an R&B guy. But at the time, he was like a hip hop dude singing instead uh-huh. of, you know, instead of rapping. It was an interesting time. And then right when I got there is when they got into the like teen pop thing again. Mm-hmm. So the owner kind of had this vision that 
it was time again for like the teen pop cycle, you know, and let's put a boy band together. And so they did Backstreet Boys. And so Backstreet Boys was not quite happening in America yet, but big in Europe, big in Canada. And then it just started, like it came back to America and they started to get huge, right? So then they orchestrated this thing where they basically stole and sink away from RCA records on a technicality. Mm. Like somebody didn't sign a contract they were supposed to sign and got in sync. So now they have in sync and Backstreet Boys and they're selling more records with one artist than the entire rest of the label sells in a year. You know, it just exploded. So Clive Calder, who was the owner of the company said, well, what happened after the two boy bands? Oh, right. The solo female, he gets Britney Spears. With like in terms of typical cycles, you mean? Right. So if you look back at the, you know, the old boy band cycle, so you had like New Edition, Uh um, New Kids on the Block, like that kind of stuff. And then you had your Tiffany's and your Debbie Gibson's, right? Because people were aesthetically primed for that sound. So having like a sexy front woman was what- Well, there was that and like how how much do you want to see five boys growing up? Sure, sure. After a while that gets tired. So, you know, the pop attention span being three and a half minutes, if that- Uh Uh You know, like you need something new. So the cycle was there's about room for two big boy bands and now we go for the solo female. So they developed Britney Spears and she was a kid, you know, at the time. Yeah. And they sent her over to, you know, Sweden and put her with Max Martin and they start writing friggin' hits, you know? Yeah. And because like, for whatever reason, we didn't realize that Sweden was like ground zero for pop hits, you know? Like, cause right. if you think about ABBA, you know, <laughs> and like Robin and like those types of artists, like they yeah. were all just smashes, but it was very formulaic pop music, you know? Ace of bass. Ace of bass, <laughs> yeah. all of that, you yeah. know? And so they just applied it here, you know? Did you work with Ray Roldan? I did. He was one of the publicists there for the time. Was he a staff publicist? He was a staff publicist, yeah. yeah. So he worked under the publicist who wound up, who worked for kind of Britney, but also wound up working for Bowling for Soup as well. She was a rock person, really, at, at heart. She had worked with like Gene Simmons and like all of her previous stuff was with rock artists. This is super interesting because you are coming from DIY, thrash, hardcore. Beyond, and, right? And now you're at the nexus of as pop as you can get. And I have a real job, quote unquote, right? A real job. And I bet <laughs> it felt kind of like weird, not, it's like family vibe. It right? was really weird. So not family vibe at all, right. because <laughs> when you work at, at a Roadrunner or like the relativity in effect thing that we had, everybody there would give like a limb to work there, uh-huh. you know? And like it's music first, you know, it's all about the music. They work at that company because of that music that they put out. Right. Yeah. So you don't exactly go to jive records and Zamba music publishing because you love the backstreet boys. Like certainly that wasn't me, Uh you know, but I wanted that at the time I wanted to go to a bigger place because to me, it was always about how popular can we make music that we love. I'm sure you were making much more there. Well, right? certainly I did. Yeah. I did well, but I did well at Roadrunner, you know, yeah. because, you know, you had like your salary, but then you made like a piece of the artist and then you have a band like Doggy Dog blow up mm-hmm. and you actually, all the royalties and overrides that you hear about from A&R guys, like I was actually getting it at the time, you know? Wow. So it wasn't bad financially, yeah. but I had outgrown the company. Like we couldn't see eye to eye anymore. I wanted to do bigger things that unfortunately it seemed like they probably weren't capable of. So it was time for me to leave after five, six years 
And, but I had a great time there. I learned a lot, great people, you know, like there's people who I worked with there that are still super close friends. Was Sue Marcus at Roadrunner? Yeah, Sue yeah. Marcus was there before I got there. So, and you know, she was your publicist yeah. for a while. So, you know, and then Tom Gates, you know, who introduced me to you. Who years ago I met because he was in the UK with Brand New. That's right. While I was promoting my first album that Truck Records had put out. And then Tom had gotten you my EP I did with Mike Capone, right. who worked with Brand New. Right, and I wound up doing uh, the publishing deal later on with yeah. Brand New, which was great, but not that record. They did the Fuck You record after they had a very successful record, and it was just like, man, what, you just guys like rebelled against yourselves, you know? It was like you decided not to make a commercial album because you were like mad at the success of your first album. Like people get weird like that. It's interesting how talking... <laughs> Self-sabotage in recent news with them. You uh, know? It's ridiculous. It's uh, And it's on so many levels, right? Yeah. Like personal and professional. So when and how did you meet and sign Bowling for Soup? It was 1999. At that time, I would do panels, you know, at like some of the conventions, the music conventions. So South by Southwest wasn't quite a big deal at this time, but it was like CMJ. Mm -hmm. And then there were local ones. And I was spending a lot of time in Atlanta at the time because I had a couple of artists that I worked with out of Atlanta. And they had their own uh, music conference called Atlantis. So before Atlantis, um, I had gotten uh, a one-song CD from a friend of mine named Mike McCoy, who's an attorney. Yeah. So Mike was Bowling for Soup's attorney. Okay. He sends me a CD of this song called The Bitch Song. So, But it was right before I was leaving for Atlanta to do a panel. Okay. So I hadn't heard it yet, but I knew that they were playing at Atlantis. But I couldn't go to their show because the groups that I was working with were playing at the same time on the same day. So Bowling for Soup were there? Yes, they yeah. were there. So I go to do my panel. Couldn't tell you what the panel was about. I'm sure it was some bullshit that most people lied about and I told the truth about. <laughs> And I meet this guy uh -huh. named Jeffro. Ah. And Jeffro comes up to me uh -huh. because he wants to give me the CD of the bitch song, not knowing I had it already, to come see the band. Wow. And he meets me outside the panel. And I have a great talk with him. He's a great guy, like yeah. whatever. And I said, I'm really, really sorry, but I can't come to the show because I got to go to these other shows. That all goes down. I go back home to New York and I listen to the CD. And I'm like, this is really cool. I like this song, you know? Yeah. And then by that time, it was on alternative radio in Dallas, but on the specialty shows. Mm. So it wasn't getting regular rotation play, but they have like the smasher trash kind of things, you know? Like, should we keep this song? Should yeah. we throw it out the window? And it was winning every night. The bitch song was winning every night. It was getting like almost to the point where it was a joke, like because they were beating Marilyn Manson. They were beating huge... <laughs> artist on the station right right so they actually retired the song right so i talked to mike mccoy and i was like you know i like that song you know and then i'd met jeff so i played the song in an a and r meeting because uh -huh. already working for zamba the a and r people for zamba went to the jive a and r meetings and there was no rock on the label whatsoever and so i played it in the a and r meeting and people kind of dug it you know and like, I'd never played anything in the A&R meeting. I was fucking terrified. Yeah. So I play it. I got a good response. You went to bat for them. Went to bat for them. Yeah. So, and they were like, you should go see the band, you know? So I'm like, cool. And I go to Denton, Texas, which is where they were from. Uh -huh. And I see them with the Nixons. Okay. And the Nixons were trying to get a new record deal at the time. So these were like the two biggest bands in Denton, Texas playing together, right? So Bowling for Soup plays first, and I love them, mm -hmm. like instantly. They were funny, like 
they just were telling jokes between songs. So like when I first heard like their self description of themselves, they said that they were like cheap trick meets Steve Martin. Right. Right. And it's I, so when I saw it, I got it, you yeah, know, yeah. because half the time was spent like fucking shitting all over each other, you know, and making jokes. And like the way they could stop right on a note, Jarrett could riff and then they come right and back. And come right back and yeah. like do all that stuff. And I thought yeah. that was super fun. Like I was like, this is great. His voice, his tone is always perfect. Well, it's super distinctive. You know, it's him. Yeah. You know, and he hits notes, which yeah. is another thing. Yeah. So, and he's, and then I wound up loving them as people, you know? Yeah. So I had a great time hanging out with them that we went, like we ate to, at some friggin' chain store restaurant, you know, right. like that's all over Texas, you know, like Chili's or some shit, you know, <laughs> we're having a great conversation and we're sitting down. The most important question I had for them after like we talked was like, well, let me ask you this. How do you feel about being on the same label as like Britney Spears? You know, I knew what I needed to hear them say, you know? And you knew that you could get them a deal. Right. Yeah. I felt like pretty comfortable. Like yeah. if I came back saying they were great live, cause I didn't think they'd be expensive, you know, sure. or whatever. It was like, you know, we could probably give this a shot. But I said to them, how do you feel about being on the same label as Britney Spears? And they're like, we think it's funny. Like <laughs> it's hysterical. I was like, good answer. No shame. Because <laughs> if you started telling me about your credibility, like your rock credibility, yeah. then I'd be like, this isn't for you, you know? <laughs> but they were like, that's fucking hysterical. I was like, perfect. And then they eventually, it worked well with Radio Disney and all of that. All of that happened. Yeah. So I, yeah, I come back to New York. I was like, we should sign this band. We signed them very inexpensively. We do the first album. It does very little in America. Was that Let's Do It For Johnny? Yes. Yeah. So it does very little in America. Okay. But- like with Doggy Dog, they go over to England. First they go over and they tour with like this local ska band playing pubs. They do the tour and they got a really good reaction. It went well. Yeah. So then they get this Sponge tour. Now, this band Sponge was one of those bands that's only big in England. Yeah, not the, the big Sponge. Yeah. Um, the UK Sponge. But in their own right, like they were playing, you know, the Astoria, uh -huh. you know, like 12, 1500 people like and selling it out. So now Bowling for Soup's on their tour and they do really well. They like destroy this band mm -hmm. like live every night. They outsell them for merch, mm. which incidentally would put the merch on my credit card because the label wouldn't give them money for the tour because they didn't see any reason for them to go over. So they came back from this tour and they had done the first album and were like, now what? But we didn't spend a lot of money on them, which is what saved us. Mm. So it's not like we lost tons of money on them. Yeah. You know, it was just like, it didn't go so great, you know? And the song didn't really become a hit, but it did pretty well over there. Got yeah. some video play and all that. So they come back and I'm like, fuck, like mm. we're going to have to talk about making another album. So I hadn't recouped yet. No, no. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to go into this Jive A&R meeting again. And they're going to say, let's drop the band oh, no. because they don't, they're going to want to drop the band. So I have to be really prepared, you know? And I literally wrote a speech for myself and memorized it of like 10 reasons you can't drop bowling for soup. And I went into the meeting and instantly like, yeah, there's no need to do another, you know, record with this band, you know, like they're as good as dropped. So I go in and I do my speech mm -hmm. and it was a damn good speech. <laughs> and you have to understand, like I'm sitting around with a bunch of A&R executives that are all pussies. Like they do not fight for anything. They don't stick up for anything. They're yes men to the two heads of the company. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, like that's the, all they say, you know? Right, right. They have no fucking creativity, no balls, yeah. you know? And so I'm in there like, you know, still 
kind of a kid ish, you know? And I'm like, I give my speech about why you can't drop them. This is something I always notice about you, Howie, is you really care about the people you work with. You have to. And that you know that like, that would be Jarrett's rent, right? And like- Well, I take that into consideration. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about should they really still be on Jive? Yeah. But those are things that factor in for me. Yeah. Like these are human beings and they have lives and there's bills to pay and there's stuff and it's, it's right or it's wrong. Should they be here or not? And I was really convinced that they should still be here and they should still do another record because I knew how good they were and I knew how Jarrett thought and that he was willing to go wherever he had to go to make this work. And so then they did the second record, right? Well, here's what happened. So I make my speech Yeah. and Clive Calder, who was the owner of the company, who's the guy who orchestrated all the boy band shit and Britney and the whole thing. Every decision, every last decision was his, period. Uh He like paused. He says to me in front of the whole room, every bone in my body tells me we should not do another album with this band, but you are so passionate about this, we'll do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) He goes, but you can only have $50,000 to make it. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I've never had $50,000 to make an album before. This is amazing. So that's when like the work began, you know, that's when it's like, how do we make an album that's really worthy, you know? So then that's when you got Butch Walker in the mix, right? We gave all 50 grand to Butch Walker because he had a studio Uh and he could just do it as a flat rate, like as long as it takes. And the co-writes. Yeah. Here's 50 grand. You write with them because he was like a really great songwriter. Him and Jared hit it off. So they were like, you know, there was a kinship there. Yeah. And so they did the album and it was really good, but we knew we didn't have the smash, you know? We just didn't have the smash. So we decided to send them back in with like the intention of like, let's really try to have a radio song come out of this next session, you know? Like we weren't gonna get any love from alternative radio. They didn't give a shit about this band, you know, because they didn't have like years of like slogging it out in a van, you know, around the country. They weren't that kind of band. They weren't on a cool label, you know? Jive would be like a joke to alternative radio. They needed a pop hit. So we sent them back in and I get a call from Jarrett and he goes, I think we have it. So I flew down to Atlanta Uh and they play me the rough mix of Girl the Bad Guys Want. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Which was very topical with the new metal jokes and everything. That was the first time I ever realized the difference between a hit and a good song where it just jumps out at you. Like you hear it once and you're like, Fro and I, like we were in the room when we heard it. We like went into the next room, like two little girls giggling. Like we just met our heartthrob, you know, like we were so happy, you know, because it was, listen, hard enough to send them back in the studio and say, you know what? Your album's not really done yet, you know? And I had to do that at a place like Jive. Then that got a Grammy nomination, right? Right. So they get nominated for a Grammy in the pop category, Uh you know, with like NSYNC and, and, and no doubt and like all the stuff. So I go to the Grammys. It's the first time, uh-huh. you know, they, that's when they wore the blue, you know, uh, the powder blue tuxedos and the ruffled shirts and stuff. Yeah. So we all go to the Grammys for the first time and they're the first award that's going to get presented on stage. Right. So we, we fucking, we look and there's no doubt standing on the side of the stage and we're like, well, guess that's over. You know, like they're obviously not going to win. they knew? Well, you saw, like they're standing yeah. there waiting to go up and get the award. Oh no. And so, but it was fine. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And we had a great experience, you know, and that all went great. And then 
the album did very, very well. And then they did the next album and it did even better because that had 1985 on it. And 1985 was even bigger. So how did you find that song? We literally were on a hunt, uh-huh. you know, yeah. for another song that could do a lot for them. You know, yeah. the manager sort of had the song already. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't the right artist for that song. Like it wouldn't be delivered the same way if it was him, but it was perfect that Bowling for Soup did it. So we're like, can Jarrett like mess with that song and rewrite the lyrics? SR71 had already released it. Yes, it it was SR71. It was actually out. It wasn't a single, obviously, right? Well, it didn't work if it was, you know? So- we're like, so we're like, nobody's heard it. Can Jarrett mess with that song? You know, and is so that he, cool? He did an update of it. So he updated it. Yeah. They recorded it with Butch. And it was just another one where you heard it and you're like, fucking smash. Right. It's a smash. Right. So I brought it to the label and it was just over, you know? And yeah. it was like immediate, like, let's go to top 40 with it, you know? And it just worked. Frank Boren's videos. The were videos always were great. awesome. Always so good. Yes, the videos were tremendous. How involved were you with like the pitch concepts and stuff as A&R? Pretty big. Like yeah. on Girl, All the Bad Guys Want a little bit, but 1985, that was me and Jarrett basically yeah. like brainstorming, like, you know, about dressing up like all these other artists and, and yeah. you know, but we, we did something similar with Girl, the Bad Guys Want. Parody was always like, Great. All them. it was. And it yeah. worked perfectly with them. And we really sat down and like came up with these video ideas. And they worked great because they were just the band's personality. You know, it was tremendous. The day before, I flew out to open with them and Tony and Greg picked me up at the airport. Uh-huh. And we watched them on Leno. Oh, yeah. And that was like really cool to be with them during like that. Apex. And it was all new for them. You yeah. Know? So it was like, it was exciting for them still because this was, everything was a first. You know, so doing those TV shows and all that stuff, it was still really exciting for them because they'd never done any stuff like that before. They were just this little band that could, you know, they were killing it. You know, it was amazing. And it's very interesting to think about the world now and how to listen to music back in the day, you had to have a physical piece of media to to listen to it pretty much and how they were kind of at that nexus between those two eras. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting time because you saw the digital world seeping in, you know, and sort of beginning to dominate. And listen, it's kind of what really hurt the music business. You know, it's like, I'll always go back to Napster because what happened with Napster is it just sort of popped up, you know, and this file sharing, you know, exercise began to happen with music listeners and all this stuff. And the music business at large, especially the labels and the publishing companies, instead of saying, well, you know, that's what our audience is starting to do, mm-hmm. you know? Instead, they're just like, let's just sue everybody, right? you know? They made it like this evil thing and kids like evil shit. And so <laughs> it almost made them like more motivated to keep quote unquote stealing music, yeah. you know? And because they had the power, they could do it whenever they wanted. They didn't have to wait for an album's release date. They didn't have to do any of that stuff. I don't have to like go to a store and buy it. I Mm -hmm. can have it right now. And I've overpaid for music for so freaking long for the one song that I like and the 1799 CD and, and all that stuff. And I'm done. What a great way for me to get music, you know, just some person in another country has it and I can have it now, yeah. you know? So it was a really interesting time because it was like Bowling for Soup was really at the tail end of like 
being able to sell albums in bulk, you know? Because didn't, that last record went gold, didn't it? The Woman 1985 on it went gold. Well, uh, Hangover You Don't Deserve. Right. And then the album before it went gold afterward. Wow. So they wound up with two gold albums. And, you know, and even the next album, it didn't do great, great, but you had like High School Never Ends on it, which was in a bunch of films and like got a lot of attention. So they were still very prominent. Like for a band like that, for people to care about them for three straight albums or longer yeah. is unheard of. When when that next album came out with um, High School Never Ends, what was it like being the A&R and like having it not hit as much as the one before? It changed, you know? Yeah. I just think that the times were changing like that was the moment when it really started to change like the pop punk thing was kind of done 2007 I this guess. was around then yeah because yeah. i left 2005 is when i left the company you know it was just changing so like the blink 182 green day you know being really popular and being the sound of pop radio at the moment like that had kind of ended yeah you know listen when they were nominated for grammy it was 2002 three four five years is a big deal you know for for kids especially because their tastes change you know you don't like the same thing when you're 15 that you do when you're 18 20 you know it's different and then you nostalgically love it when you're 25 well then that's what happened with them right? right so then they started doing the warp tours like of the last couple of years and they're a fucking heritage act yeah you know and like there's more people watching them than like these other bands that are supposed to be the cool young bands. Right. And it's amazing. It's the testament of great performance and timeless songs. Well, that's the thing. It's songs. It's always about songs. Yeah. And it's always been about songs. Music is about friggin' songs, period, period, period. Imagine that. Melodies. Yeah. It's shocking. Right. So, but every genre, everything, it's about the fucking songs. Yeah. The hip hop we love and remember, it's about those songs or those beats or those anthems or whatever. And that's the stuff you remember. And it goes back to remembering Elvis and remembering the Beatles and, you know, or the Stones or whatever. They wrote songs. And why Nirvana kind of was the breakout punk band. Well, because it was a great song, you know? Smells Like Teen Spirit was a great song. It was just dressed up as like a major label produced angry punk song, you know? What was your first reaction to my music when Tom, my former manager, got it to you? I mean, I loved it because I loved where you were going with lyrics like because it was different and like you had like a lane lyrically that like no one else was doing right and then i would hear like some of the samples and stuff that you would use and like when you used brand new and things like that and i'm like jesus christ like who does this you know what i mean (laughs) so that was like the the initial like this is tremendous and they were memorable songs so that was the other thing so you had a memorable song you had something that was unique and different. And then like the samples, like you had to be in almost like a little special club to get it. Right. Right. And they weren't the most mainstream. No, but it doesn't matter because kids want to be in the cool little club, you know, later on, you know? Right. Right. So ultimately they want to know what that stuff is. The handful of kids at the show that know, turn on the rest of the kids that don't, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, then I would see you live uh, when you were doing like the Bowery Poetry Club, you know, where you just did it solo with a laptop and things like that. And I'm like, you like, part of me is like, I'm not really sure what the fuck I'm watching. And then like (laughs) the other half is like, this is brilliant, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Howard. And then it started to just continually <laughs> lean to brilliant, you know? And I got a feel for like what you felt you were 
as an artist, you know, like what what is MC Lars about? Yeah. And it made sense to me. The thing I always would say is it's funny, but it's not a joke. Right. I take it serious. And I think that's something I had in common with Bowling for Soup. Right. That's a good, that's a good way of looking at it. Weird Al is another example. Like, well, you can't just do what Weird Al does because you feel like it, you know? Right. It's like Weird Al does what he does because he's a freaking genius, yeah. you know, and can pull it off. Right. You know, so nobody else could just take the MC Lars formula and just do it. You know, there was that, all this talk of nerdcore at the time and it was in the paper and, you know, the newspaper and all that stuff. But even all these artists that were being discussed under this banner of nerdcore, none were alike. You That's know? true. They were all really different. Yeah. Um, but it was basically about like, I don't have to be like the hippest rap artist and I can go anywhere I want lyrically, you know? Yeah. And from musical soundscape stuff, I could do whatever I want. You know, there's no sort of, there's no rules, you know? And that was 2003, 2004. That was a novel concept, something that really tapping into that and all the indie rap, like Atmosphere and Anticon and Sage right. Francis, all that, and Ill Bill. Right, it was a good time for that. Now that there's no barriers, it's not so exciting to be merging cultures, or it's just, it's anarchy, and it's a different, I don't know, it's... I think it's, stuff is really all over the place now, you know? Yeah. It's too all over the place. Um, and some people would disagree, but I, I feel like music that's timeless... I'm not hearing a whole lot of it coming out now, you know, like stuff that's coming out that's new, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of trendy stuff that is for the moment, you know, and there's something to be said about that, but I don't particularly like that. I would prefer to hear something that I really can relate to that I may like five years from now or longer, you know, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And I'm just not hearing a lot of that, you know, I'm hearing a lot of, drug glorification. And I've heard that before, right. but it was new and it was shocking. Right. It's not shocking. Little Zan is not shocking. You're an asshole. You know what I mean? Like you're glorifying young kids pulling fucking, you know, benzodiazepines out of their parents' fucking, you know, closets or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And like, listen to my music on this, you know? And it's like, I hate that, you know? And it's like, I've had conversations with people. It's like, yeah, but you got to let that be too. And it's like, I get it, you know, but it just seems destructive to me, you know? Well, and it's also this- Fuck the police is one thing, <laughs> right. you know, d do lots of drugs and fuck the world is another, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. There's indulgent rebellion versus like the political side of it. Right. And also now- It's not saying anything. No, you it's know? hedonistic. And, and But would you argue that Ramones, now I want to sniff some glue- is of a course. similar, but what's of course, the, but the it, difference you think? Better songs. Yeah. More it, timeless songwriting. I remember the, the, the hook. Yeah. You know, so there were songs like I can sing you now. I want to sniff some glue right now. I know the melody. Yeah. You know, I couldn't tell you uh, one song from most any of these, you know, newer MCs or whatever you want to call them. If they're even fucking MCs, I think they're just acts, you know? I was talking to friend a lot about this, that, like with Takashi Six Nine, it's Ugh. about having that <laughs> having that visual element where you're noticeable on your Instagram. Right, having a colorful hair, being an icon, a but it's fucking terrible. It's more emphasis on the imagery and the marketing than the music. I remember one thing about a song that he's done. It's like shot, 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 shot. <laughs> you know, like that's what I remember. It's yeah. like so what you know. I just think about this as in you and I both love music. We both yeah. love rebellious underground music. If 
kids today, it's that that's their dead Kennedys. Well, maybe they think it is, but I don't know how much they're going to care in a short period of time. They won't be nostalgic about him. I'm just speaking my opinion, but I doubt it. Yeah. Do you still find music that inspires you that you love? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. What are your channels for that? I, you know, thankfully have so many people around me, uh-huh. you know, that turn me on to things. Yeah. That that's usually how it happens. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not like scouring Spotify playlists to like find something, you know, but I still, there's certain blogs that I read and I keep up on. And I still love music, so I want to listen to something. If I think I'm going to like it, I want to hear it. Like, yeah. It's so few and far between these days in terms of, like, liking something new. So if I can, that's amazing if there's something new that, like, you know, I can latch on to and hear. Um, so, but it tends to come from friends that they heard something super genuine or real different and you know and maybe i'll think it's completely outlandish or whatever i rarely think something's outlandish i can listen to fucking anything but i really do rely on the people around me and i don't even realize that that's what i do but i do yeah and and that's who tends to turn me on to newer stuff you have a daughter right do you get inspired by her taste no because she likes just very straight pop music you know but She's pretty open-minded, yeah. you know, so I can play her stuff, uh-huh. but she really is in that like 10-year-old mentality, like her and her friends hear songs at a party or wherever, you know. She does have this thing where she likes to be up on stuff before other people. Right. So I appreciate that, you know, like that maybe comes from me a little bit. Yeah, like where, sure. Where like she likes to find out about something, you know, a little bit before all of her friends, you know. Talking about your career in the music industry and stuff, like you've always been a storyteller and you've always been a, a maven to me and you've always been someone who's passionate about preserving the culture and as industry shifted, it's been cool seeing you launch your career as an author and a publisher. Well, like I said earlier, you know, with the whole Metal List book, that it kind of happened a little bit by accident. Like yeah. it wasn't a plan, you know, so I did that first book. And then unbeknownst to me, this literary agent that helped us, that was Sasha's guy, you know, said to me, so what's next? I was like, next. It's like, I didn't think there was going to be next. You yeah. know, I was like, I certainly was not giving it any thought. And he goes, well, you know, I know someone is looking for a writer for a project. I'll throw your name in there. And we'll see what happens. And that turned out to be the War Tour book. That's awesome. Um, so, and then I was like, oh, well, you know, I know Kevin Lyman, right? And he's like, no, I didn't know that. I was like, well, that's not going to hurt our chances, right? <laughs> and he's like, no, that's not going to hurt our chances. I was like, so just please make sure he knows it's me that like I want to do it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so I got hired to do that. You're in the book and the whole thing. It's called Misfit Summer Camp. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, 20 years on the road with the Vans Warp Tour. And so you can get it through the uh, the Warp Tour's merch company. Um, or you can get it the uh, the ebook version um, on Amazon. Cool. But uh, so then uh, I was like, I want to keep you know doing stuff, but I want to do something that's like of my doing. Like I want to pick what it's going to be. Sure. And so I found out that this guy was doing a documentary about HR from the Bad Brains. Bad Brains are my favorite band of all time since I'm a kid. You know. When we started in effect, one of the first releases was the Bad Brains Roar cassette on CD for the first time. It had never been on CD before. Um, and, uh, you know, so I just, I love them. They're tattooed on my body. It's fucking, you know, like, you know, bucket list shit, you know? Yeah. And so I found out that this guy was going to do a documentary about HR. So I cold called him and I said, what do you think about doing a companion book, you know, to the film? 
And he's like, let's do it. So he got HR and they came to New York and we discussed it and we wound up doing a deal and doing that book. And so I did, for all intents and purposes, I did HR's biography, which I could never have imagined, you know, even thinking about, let alone doing. Listen, HR, you have to like see the movie or read the book. There's too much in a short period to tell you, you know, yeah. about HR's life, you know? I was at your, the book release. That's right. Brooklyn. You came and we showed the movie. Yeah. And it's just, it, there's nobody who's lived a life like this guy, you know? So you've gotten to know him intimately, huh? I know him pretty well. Like yeah. we're friends now, you know? Yeah, yeah. And which is another thing I never would have expected. <laughs> right. But, you know, and where the book ends, um, you know, things are starting to go in a positive direction for him. You know, the Bad Brains have done shows since the book. Um, he had brain surgery since the book. Um, and he's doing a lot better. And it's amazing to see. And it's really, like, gratifying because a lot of people think that the film and the book, like, helped motivate him a little bit, you know? Yeah. And so that's, like, the best part of all, honestly, because, you know, I, I he, he means so much to me, even if I didn't know him, you know? It's been a, a great experience. I saw him in Brooklyn this week, you know? He was just, he just played at El Cortez, you know? Mm. Great show. He plays for an hour and 45 minutes. He had brain surgery an hour, a, a year ago, you know? It's, like, unbelievable. Is he with solo or is he with the bad brain? This was again? solo. So yeah. he did a few shows. He did... um Riot Fest, you know, with Bad Brains. Do they do the fast old stuff? They did. So the way they did it, HR did like the first 20 minutes, half hour, including some of the faster songs. Yeah. And then Randy Blythe from Lamb of God does the second half of the show. Okay. And does all the super fast stuff. Okay. Um, so they split the set that way. But but Randy's like a super fan, yeah. you know? He's like a super Bad Brains fan. He grew up in the same area as those guys, younger, but, you know, grew up in the Virginia, D.C., Maryland area. So what we're doing now, because so much has happened with HR since that book ended, is we're going to do a paperback version with new material that picks up where the other one left off. And Randy wrote the forward for us. Oh, cool. Um, so, which is really cool. And he contributed, Randy's doing a book called Frontman. And, you know, he's a photographer. And so he is taking portraits of his favorite frontmen um, mm. in, in music. And so he gave us one of his portraits um, of HR. Uh, to use for the book. Oh, cool. And so, and he wrote the forward. So that, that's going to happen next year as well. Lesser Gods is your publishing company, Yeah, right? not anymore. So yeah. that's what it's been. Okay. Um, so Lesser Gods did the HR book and did the hip hop alphabet book that I did with Caves from Lords of Brooklyn. My editor there left and is going over to, he went over to a company called Post Hill Press, which goes through Simon & Schuster. And so I did a deal with them. We're going to do Hip Hop Alphabet 2. So we're doing a second one because the first one's completely sold out. Yeah. Um, it looks like they're going to acquire the rights to the first one so that they can get it back out there. And then uh, there's one more I don't want to jinx, uh -huh. but we're very close to finishing a second deal uh, to for me to do the biography of two members of one of my favorite bands, another one of my favorite bands that happen to be brothers. You've done everything from list books to history books to biographies, now kids books. Five books in five years. It's pretty good, man. Yeah, I kind of like it. And then I have ideas for others. Like my daughter and I have been toying with an idea of doing a book together. And she has a great idea like this that I love. Uh -huh. And it's long story short, it's about 
she goes to like these birthday parties and stuff. And there's the kids that bring their devices with them. So they bring a phone or they have an iPad or whatever. Yeah. And they're like completely disconnected from the party, you know? Yeah. And so it's like this thing where a kid from now reconnects with a kid from a bunch of years ago that really only had like other human contact as like entertainment, you know? Yeah, right. And that they meet and and sort of are just like the ones trying to tell them the good things that they'll have at their fingertips later in life and the mm. one saying, oh, I would never want like that to, you know, be a part of my life because then I wouldn't hang out with my friends. Right. You know? And so we're, we're like sort of toying with this idea, I like to do a book together with me and my 10-year-old. You and I go back to the pre-smartphone yeah. era and it, it makes me wonder, like, would you ever want to go work for a label again if it made sense? No. <laughs> I don't want to have to sell music ever again. Yeah. You've done it successfully. and it's- My toe is still in the water, but I don't have to sell a record or anything or yeah. download or stream. You You're know? selling this, the culture and the history now. The I think that's important because yeah. I think... I think when you lose sight of that stuff, stuff, things start not to make sense anymore, you know? And I think we're kind of in a period now where stuff is really not making a lot of sense, you know, where artists are coming up and just doing weird shit and, you know, with no respect for the culture at all. And you have these sort of popular, you know, SoundCloud rappers who are shitting on Biggie and like, you know, things like that. It's like, you can't ever do that. You can never, ever, ever do that because you wouldn't be here without them. You you have to know about hip hop's culture and history, right? And respect it and- because you can't be a branch of the tree and not know the rest of the tree. It's yeah. like you can't do that. And it's entertaining for a, for a second if you do, right? And it's like you know you're going to cross some barriers that people will be like, yeah, no, you know, <laughs> like I'm not really. You obviously don't know what the fuck you're talking mm-hmm. about, and you don't know the history of this music at all. Do you have any rappers? Of the past 10 years you like? Yeah, like, you know who I really like right now is um, Nems. Mm. You know what Nems at all from Coney Island? No. He's just super hardcore, harsh as fuck, you know what I mean? But, like, I like his rhyme skills and, you know, like, he puts up kind of a freestyle a day on Instagram <laughs> and it's, like, unbelievable. Like, it, it, he'll just, he's like a battle rapper guy. He does, like, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But, um... He's someone who, as a hardcore rapper, like someone who I've heard in the last few years that I really like, who I think is really good. I've been on like an Eric B. M. Rakim kick lately since they sort of semi-reformed or whatever. Yeah. Um, But those are, again, classic records. And But there's people out there still doing really good stuff, you know? Yeah. I agree. But the ones that I can respect, you know, and like are few and far between, you know? Have you heard of the Suicide Boys? I saw the Suicide Boys. What's your verdict? The energy of the show was stupid, like great stupid, yeah, you know? Yeah. So their energy was amazing. Where did they play? They played Irving Plaza. It was a pretty packed. Sold out. Yeah. Crowd was crazy. That's dope. You know, like really going off, you know? Uh-huh. There's nothing for me to hang on to, you know what I mean? It's like other than the energy, like the lyrics I don't give a shit about. Right. Their topics I don't give a shit about, you right. know? So like- while I love the energy in the club and like this punk rock energy of like what they do, like I just don't care about what they do. You well, know? it's dark, right? And you're in a light But dark's place. okay. But dark's yeah. okay. I love dark. Nems is dark as fuck, you know? What do you feel What misses the mark about it? I don't remember any of it. Okay. I don't remember any of it and I can't relate to any of it. For me, when I'm listening to Spotify, when I'm walking, it's, I have a playlist of all their stuff Yeah, and I've listened to it a lot. And it's like... <laughs> 
I love the production and I love the flow. Well, the producer apparently is like the star of that group. Yeah. Again, musically, some of it's pretty cool and like all of that, but I just can't like, can't wrap my hands around the whole thing. A specific thing, hook. You know? Yeah. Um, I can't like get down with the whole package of Suicide Boys, you know what I mean? Yeah, right, right. But like, but I appreciated like what they did and I respect like that they're doing it indie and like, you know, it's like they're just, they're getting it done without like a lot of help. To me, it reminds me, it's like a reincarnation of, of ICP. I figured you were going to say that. Yeah. ICP, you don't listen to them for the, for the choruses necessarily. Right. Like I'm not an ICP fan, but I have the utmost respect for their, for their hustle. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you can't not. Right. You know, it's so fucking great, like what they've accomplished and they're still here and, you know, and the, they created a culture, you know, yeah. um, but the music doesn't do it for me, you know, but yeah. that doesn't mean I don't respect them, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of more how I feel about Suicide Boys. Like I can't get into it, but like, you know, love and props to those guys, like go do it, you know? And what's great is having young kids into underground, like yeah, raw the rap. crowd's young. That's tight. Yeah. That's, that's crowd is very young. Yeah. I was like the old man in the room <laughs> that night for sure. How did you get turned on to them? Um, so Bob Bortnick, who you may know, uh, who I worked with at Jive and Zamba and then at Warner Chapel, um, he did a publishing deal with them. Okay. And, uh, wow. so, and I'd heard about them already. Like yeah, I knew the yeah. name, but like he, he said, come see them, right. you know, like they're playing Irving right. Plaza tomorrow. Come. Yeah. So I went with him and, uh, you know, and it's just, it was just a different planet, but like the energy was awesome. You know, like that's mm. what, that's what grabbed me. Like the kids were going berserk. I always like when I find about like a region, regional movement, then all the artists they work with like Fat Nick and Ghost right. Main and like, right. so any closing thoughts? As we um, wrap it up. I just love that like we're still both doing something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like we're both here. We're relatively healthy, I guess. And like, <laughs> you know, um, congratulations on your nuptials. That's a big thing. Thank you. Uh, I was very proud to be there. Um, but like I'm just proud of you persevering and like through very difficult waters, you know, and just continuing to do music and I'm doing my thing and a lot of the friends around us still are and, and all that. And like, that's the best, you know? And, and, yeah, man. you know, and just, you got to just keep it alive. That's it. I appreciate you saying that because you've always been like a life raft for me and always like every high moment from warp tour to out of college, being able to go on tour with Bowling for Soup to being able to talk about everything. Like you've always been a beacon for me. So I appreciate it. How well, we I appreciate <laughs> you, you saying that because I just want people to hear shit. That's good. That's it. That's all I've ever wanted. When we started in effect, people like, oh, like, you know, you guys are selling out. Like, you know, people love to throw around selling out, right, you know, sure. hardcore and whatever. And it's like, just shut the fuck up. Like, like you live in New York and LA and stuff like that. You're spoiled. Like you have access to everything, multiple record stores you can go to, you know, all these types of things. Like you could still go to a record store. I don't even know if record stores exist. There's still record stores in New York and LA. And, you know, <laughs> and it's like, how about the kid who lives in Nebraska, you know, like, should they not have access to this stuff? Because like the way you have to go about it is like not DIY all the time. Yeah. It's like, that's ridiculous. That's you being selfish. I've always noticed you don't have patience for those gatekeepers or the, or the hipster culture, which is like too cool for whatever. I, no, it's about you're making music. People should hear it as many people as possible. Don't kill anybody. Don't hurt anybody along the way. All good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's it. 
It's and, very simple. And treat people well. Right. And don't look in people's pockets and yeah, like, yeah. like I'm even saying like Suicide Boys and ICP, I can respect their hustle. Like I don't have to shit on them because yeah. I'm not a fan. Like I respect what they do. I'm just, I don't love their music. That's it. You know, that's cool. I bet you they'd even respect somebody saying that. Like, yeah. you know, like, believe me, I see what they've done. You know, I get it. That's a lot of hard work over a lot of years. Yeah. Like, great. Like, go, go do it. Keep doing it. Right. Do it till you die. Yeah. That's, and that's the path that you and I are both on. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, Howie Abrams, thank you very much. We're, oh, oh, and Merciless is your uh, show you do with Bill. Yeah, so uh, Ill Bill and I have a, a metal, hardcore, punk radio show called Merciless. Um, we're on every other week on Bushwick Radio. Go on to uh, SoundCloud or MixCloud. We have a bunch of uh, archived shows up there. And we actually have a the pretty big announcement that'll be coming up, you know, relatively soon about the show because we're going to be, we may be moving the show. All right, cool. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Howie. It's been awesome. No doubt. Push.
shelf. Three million soybeans. Two loaf of toilets. give me the mic i get nutty still get nutty on the mic uh i wanted to update you guys that april 23rd how we second hip-hop alphabet comes out and the paperback version of his book about hr from the bad brains and finally he is doing a book about lou and peter from sick of it all which is coming out next winter so the dude's busy and uh he's on twitter it's how nice that's his name how nice one word so Peep that flavor. I'm MC Lars. I keep coming hard with the Patreon songs. Chronicles of Narnia finishing the EP. Um, the Last Battle's dropping very soon. You can get that all as a Narnian EP download if you sign up. And what else? Please leave a review. Please leave a comment. Please spread the word. And uh, next week, guess what? I've got my dad, MC Bob Nielsen. Home for the holidays. Thought it'd be kind of cool to do some family episode. So I'm going to interview my dad and then next week will be my mom. So that'll be very interesting. MC Bob Nielsen and DJ Kathy. Tune in. It's your boy MC Lars. Thank you. Have a great week, y'all. See ya.